0: Hello, this is Susan Marie and welcome to The Human Condition, a conversation with you based upon everyday experiences made simple. Now you can rate and subscribe to me on iTunes, SoundCloud, Amazon Audible, and by visiting my website, suemarie.info. And everything I talk about will be available in the data section of the show. Today, I wish to speak with you about higher cognitive processes, thinking and consciousness. What is the separation of the human species from other animals and to explore the realms of consciousness, focusing on the nature of mindfulness, meditation, and spirituality. For example, Walt Whitman in The Leaves of Grass wrote, a child said, what is the grass, fetching it to me with full hands how could I answer the child? I do not know what it is any more than he. And creativity is a process where the artist is able to access the unconscious mind, which allows the conscious mind to dissipate or go away, which in turn allows the subconscious to enter. Numerous definitions exist according to one's perception. The 14th Dalai Lama, believed consciousness to be choosing spiritual development over material gain. And Buddhism practices the belief that human beings are understood as fundamentally good, but monetarily confused. Through the writing of Walt Whitman and the teachings of Buddha, consciousness is everything we experience. You see, Whitman was tapping into all three areas of the mind, the conscious, subconscious, and unconscious, including his own spirituality when he wrote poetry. In the lines I read from Leaves of Grass, Whitman has no conscious reply to the child, for he, like the child, is humbled before the universe, nature, and existence. So how then is it possible to allow all three areas of the brain to work simultaneously? Well, all three parts work together to create our own reality that produces knowledge utilized to change habits and create a happier, more peaceful, and confident self, like Buddha suggests. Scientifically, The brain as a whole generates experience every day, all day. However, the seat of consciousness goes much deeper to physical footprints from the brain to the spinal cord. Consider a a tetraplegic, an individual who is paralyzed in legs, arms, and torso, no bodily sensations, and damage to the cerebellum. They continue to see, hear, smell, feel emotions, and recall memory. Then consider the cerebellum, which is the little brain behind the brain. It's a brain circuit for motor control that has the most neurons, about 69 billion, which is four times more than the rest of the brain. Now, one would think damage to the cerebellum would affect consciousness. However, it doesn't. Even being born without a cerebellum does not affect the conscious experience of an individual. Neural tissue found in white and gray matter regions of the brain compose the seat of consciousness. Science has long debated that when you are observing something, you are conscious of what you are experiencing. And different areas of the brain access that information. And if you do something unconsciously, that information is local to the specific sensory area of the brain. For example, speaking these words. I'm doing that automatically. If asked how I am speaking, I don't really know because I have little conscious access to that information. It's the local brain circuits that... Tell my mouth to move. This theory is known as the global neuronal workspace. And Sigmund Freud, psychoanalyst, created a model of the mind, possibly the best that exists. It separates the brain into three tiers the conscious mind or ego, the pre conscious or subconscious, and the unconscious mind. And each area is represented by a percentage showing how much of that part of the brain we use. Freud's model, it's the simplest way to attempt to define conscious, subconscious, and unconscious. The conscious mind is 10%, which communicates to the outside world and the inner self through speech, pictures, writing, physical movement, and thought. The subconscious mind is 50 to 60%. That oversees recent memories and its continuous contact with our unconscious. Now the unconscious mind is 30 to 40%. That's the storehouse of all of our memories and experiences repressed and consciously forgotten. And it's from all of these memories and experiences that our beliefs, habits, and behaviors are formed. The unconscious mind constantly communicates with the conscious mind through the subconscious mind. It's like a chain link fence. These three regions of the brain are interconnected. Definitions of the mind vary according to one's perception. For example, a philosopher may view mind as one's personality, identity, and memories. A religious individual may view the mind as a vessel that houses a spirit or awareness of God. And to a scientist, the mind is the generator of ideas and thoughts. Now, in 2012, the Cambridge Declaration on Consciousness was published. This was witnessed by Stephen Hawking, and it stated that scientific evidence showed clearly that non-human animals have conscious states along with the capacity to exhibit intentional behaviors. This declaration proposes that mammals, birds, and other organisms have the same brain structures that make consciousness possible in humans. Effective consciousness which is core emotions in animals and humans, is a neglected form of animal-human consciousness experienced through emotional states. And other mammals do have affective experiences. Humans have the capacity for consciousness because we think, make decisions, have feelings, and have a sense of self. Higher order cognitive processes ones that more drastically separate the human species from other animals, involve judgment, logic, problem solving, creativity, intelligence, and introspection is secondary awareness or secondary consciousness. Now primary consciousness is simple awareness and perception in both animals and humans. Effective consciousness, the simplest form of consciousness is the ability to have core feelings and emotions. Secondary consciousness is the ability to move beyond the limits of primary consciousness. Primary consciousness is a simple awareness present in both animals and humans. So secondary consciousness is the ability to move beyond the limits of primary to access self-reflection, abstract thinking, and metacognition. Metacognition is really integral. It's the awareness and understanding of one's own thought processes. This state of consciousness is what separates man from animal. Metacognition is thinking about one's thinking and refers to the processes used to plan, monitor, and assess one's understanding and performance. Metacognition is critical awareness of one's thinking and learning and seeing oneself as a thinker and learner. One key aspect of metacognition in humans in relation to animals is that humans can recognize the limit to one's own knowledge and figure out how to expand that limit. An example of this is knowing what one's strengths and weaknesses are. In contrast, humans that are unaware of metacognition are people that tend to be blissfully unaware of their incompetence or lack insight. Insight about their own deficiencies in their intellectual or social skills. And it's imperative consistently to ask oneself, what am I learning? Or how am I learning? Such questions challenge one to test self-efficacy. Albert Bandura, a social cognitive psychologist, postulated that people with high assurance in their capabilities approach difficult tasks as challenges to be mastered rather than threats to be avoided. And this is really important because Bandura believed that through mastery of experiences, resilience, sustained effort, overcoming obstacles, allowing setbacks and difficulties as a learning tool combined with believing in oneself is what establishes a strong sense of self-efficacy. After people become convinced they have what it takes to succeed, they persevere in the face of adversity and quickly rebound from setback. As Carl Jung wrote in Relations Between the Ego and the Unconscious, which addresses variances between healthy and unhealthy self-efficacy, one man's optimism makes him overweening, while another's pessimism makes him overanxious and dependent as with everything, balance. Regarding psychology and cognitive processes, metacognition is regulated by forethought, such as embodying goals, personal goal setting, and motivation, and the stronger the self-efficacy, the higher the goal challenge is set. In addition, the belief in oneself as an effective process controls thought processes that regulate thought-produced stress. Human accomplishments and positive well-being require an optimistic sense of personal efficacy. Strong self-efficacy can come from suffering severe distress and trauma, recovering and growing, practices such as mindfulness and meditation, and different periods of life present certain types of competency that everyone must pass. I mean, there's various pathways through life, and at any given period, people will vary in how they manage their lives. How then is it possible for the brain, a physical object, to have non-physical thoughts and feelings? Imagine you wish to say hello to someone, and you do by saying hello. Your mouth, lips, vocal cords, and muscles are physical objects that move to form words. However, your idea was to say hello, which is not physical. So how does a non-physical idea allow your mouth to, lips, vocal cords, and muscles to move. This is a form of dualism, mind and body separation, meaning the mind, non-physical, and its thoughts and feelings are a different entity from the physical, the body and the brain. Yet the two influence each other. Philosopher René Descartes in the 17th century presented the metaphysical stance that mind and body are two distinct substances, each with a different essential nature. Dualism, the body is subject to mechanical laws and the mind is not. This means that people can exist with two histories, one that occurs in and with the physical body, the other what consists in and of the mind. As a result, one history involves events only in the physical world, the second history events only in the mental world. The mind and body connection in addition to dualism, represents how the mind and body, while separate, influence the other by occurring on a physical and chemical level. The mind encompasses mental states including thoughts, beliefs, attitudes, and emotions and varying mental states positively and negatively that affect biological functioning. The nervous, endocrine, and immune systems share a common chemical language that allows communication between the mind and body through hormones and neurotransmitters. Examples include feeling your heart pounding in your chest or feeling butterflies in your stomach. So mindfulness. Conscious present thinking and awareness is utilized when people are encouraged to pause, pay attention to, and take delight in the present moment. In spirituality, mindfulness is practiced via meditation, prayer, and song. Mindfulness helps to reduce stress and improve the quality of life. Paying attention allows one to identify emotions as they arise, process them, and choose how to react. Meditation helps the body control emotional responses and increase the awareness of the body's biological processes such as neurotransmitters that flood the body with stress hormones. So mind-body modalities help control psycho-emotional health, which is the mind, as well as physical health, which is the body. So while there's separation of mind and body, which is dualism, mind and body influence one another. Joseph Campbell explained meditation, mindfulness, and all three forms of thinking, conscious, subconscious, and unconscious, by focusing on the journey of life instead of focusing on the destination. Campbell, along with Bill Moyers, discusses higher consciousness and the power of myth, which is mind-blowing. You need to watch it and read that book. But Campbell states, the end of the world is not an event to come. It is an event of psychological transformation, of visionary transformation, and that it's been said that poetry consists of letting the word be heard beyond words. Everything that's transitory is but a metaphorical reference. Bill Moyers then asked Campbell how we humans worship love and die for metaphor. Then Campbell introduces one word, Om, spelled A-U-M, used during meditation and yoga. And he continued, "Om is the word that represents to our ears that sound of energy of the universe of which all things are manifestations. The origin of AUM, A-U-M, or O-M, which is Sanskrit, Hindi, Tibetan, Latin, is defined as all. Three sounds, A, U, and M, symbolize states of consciousness. A is conscious or waking state, U is the dream state, and M is the dreamless sleep state. The combination of all three represents the full state of realization. So OM, like Freud, are the three parts of the brain. Campbell continued, the final state, the combination of the three, A-U-M, which is the same as the combination of the unconscious, subconscious, and conscious mind, is the aim of yoga, samadhi, which is a complete union between breath, body, mind, and spirit, which is the same as Descartes, speaking of dualism, and the mind-body connection. Om embodies the entire essence of the universe. Om is the birth, universe, all images and fragments, and the proof of being in the world. Campbell compounds on existence, deciding that the meanings humankind searches for are essentially meaningless because language has limitations. It is in this vein Joseph Campbell asks us to focus from the conscious to the subconscious to the unconscious. Please join me next time for more interesting conversations and check out my last episode on self-care.